0: Hello and welcome to the Family Histories podcast, the show for and about people who make sense of the census, go gaga for gravestones or just can't say no to an old newspaper. My name is Andrew Martin and I've been researching my entire family history for more than 25 years. In this episode, my guest will be telling us how he got hooked on tracing his family tree, we'll be hearing about his tyrannical Spanish relative and we'll be looking for a missing Victorian lady in Birmingham, UK. So, dust off those death certificates, grab a cuppa, and let's meet today's guest. My guest today is an absolute family history addict. He not only researches his own rich blend of Spanish, Italian-American and English ancestry, but he helps others to research theirs too. That deep-rooted genetic desire for travel has no doubt led him to speak at conferences in different countries, including Belgium, France and the UK, as well as numerous webinars and even RootsTech Connect. He's had articles published in well-known genealogy magazines and family history society journals and most recently he launched Revista Descendientes, the first free downloadable Spanish-language genealogy magazine. You'll find him all over Twitter like a rash, arranging Matryoshka doll challenges or bulk buying DNA test kits. But today, it's a pleasure to welcome my guest, Daniel Smith-Ramos, to the Family Histories podcast. Hello, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm great. Thank you very much. And I'm really pleased to have you here with us help yourself to a biscuit. There's quite a lot in that introduction to unpack, isn't there?
1: Yes, I'm sorry about that. I I felt quite sorry for you while you were saying all that. It is a a bit of a bio, even though I'm still in my prime. I'm still very young, but uh, I've accumulated in a very short span of time a lot of uh, activity, mainly through my Twitter account, as you you just said. it's nonstop, honestly, uh, with all the DNA kit information that's coming in um, with the magazine, Revista Descendientes, well done for the pronunciation Thank there. You. Um, it's, 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 it's crazy at the moment, but in a good way. And um, given the current context with the pandemic and all that, um, it's actually wonderful to have my hands uh, full with so many projects and uh, I couldn't be happier. And also, I couldn't be happier to be here with you today.
0: So with all of those achievements that we've just heard about in your introduction, uh, can you cast your mind back to uh, what it might have been that started this uh, addiction with our beloved hobby uh, of uh, tracing our family history? Was there a particular event that really motivated you and got you hooked?
1: Well, I don't think... um... I don't think this is something that I can pinpoint to a specific moment or a specific event in my life. I think there are several events or several factors that um, drew me into uh, family history research. Um, one of the first, one of the earliest memories that I've got actually um, was when I had to do, as many of us did um when when at school um was to create a rough family tree of who am i who are my parents who are my grandparents and so on and i remember showing my my mum what i'd done and i remember her actually uh correcting the tree that i'd done basically because she said well you do know that the man who we call jim who was i mean to all effects and purposes was my paternal grandfather she said well you do know that he's not your grandfather, right? And I was like, okay, that's news to me. I was very young at the time. I mean, I, I must have been, I mean, I don't know, maybe six or seven at the time.
0: Well, that must have been a little bit strange for you. How did you feel about that?
1: I suspected, I, I suppose when, when realising it, I, I I kind of suspected that he wasn't, I, I knew that I wasn't, that I didn't have any Irish blood, and Jim was Irish. Uh, He was actually my grandmother's partner, and, I mean, they'd been together for, I don't know, 30 years or 40 years by then, possibly even more. Um, So I I just remember being struck by the the confirmation of that, Um, but also the fact that I had always called him Jim as opposed to Grandpa or something like that, while my grandmother was Nana or Nan. Um, so there was that sort of hint there, but I never stopped to think, well, who is my dad? I mean, as children don't wonder about these things, you know, you don't, don't stop and think who is my actual grandfather. And it was only through time that I remember, uh, picking up information about who my dad's real father was, biological father, I should say. I mean, he grew up without a father figure as such until Jim came along, but, um, it, that that was i think a, a very significant moment in my history now i didn't begin researching my family tree at the time i was still very young but i remember years later i w- must have been around 11 or 12 at the time when someone handed me over um, a family tree that some relative had done and i just remember being fascinated by this map of people that i was beholding um and just seeing my mother's name, I wasn't on the tree, but I saw my mother there and my aunt and uncle and my grandparents and all these other relatives that I'd never even heard of. And I just thought, this is incredible. This, the, it, it just gave me a, a sense of belonging to to this huge network of unknown people. And I
0: just became... A bigger picture.
1: A bigger picture, exactly. It, it, it sort of connected me. Um, it made me, yes, as I said, a, a feeling of belonging. And, um, and that's, I think that was the moment when I started sort of taking an active interest in family tree, in family history, um, and my family tree specifically. But, um, and then of course, through my father's story about not knowing who his real father was, his biological father, um, I, I, started delving into that with the advent of the of the internet um, coming into our lives um, so that made researching him a little bit easier and uh, I have to say that researching my uh, biological grandfather's history was by far the most fascinating episode in my family history research history
0: so can can you uh, think of when you started to actually research using uh, various records from outside of your own Family. Where did you start with that?
1: I think I must have been in my sort of mid to late teens or so. We just got internet at home, so I remember going on, onto ancestry uh, at the time. We didn't even have a paying a paid account. We just sort of you know looked at what we could at the free records, and I remember just accepting any kind of record that we just found as like, oh look, you know, there's a there's a Smith. You know, they must be related to us. Um, and I remember just the, the the overwhelming sensation of seeing uh, all these records that were, you know, at my disposal. In time, uh, as I went to university, I got into it a bit more. And then I was told by an aunt, for example, who who's a lawyer, she said, well, you do know that uh, if you want to do the family tree, um, you can actually order birth records and death records and marriage records from the civil registry, and it's free. And I was like, oh, really? Because uh, uh, civil registration in Spain, the civil registry, is actually free. It's a free service, unlike the UK, for example, uh, and many other countries. And uh, that, of course, was that opened the floodgates for me. I just began ordering uh, records for my family like crazy, to the point where I was actually uh, li- blacklisted by a civil registry office because they said, you've ordered far too many. And okay, it is a free service, but you shouldn't over overdo it you know don't overstep
0: <laughs> i'm trying to imagine the um general registrar office uh going yeah. free that that would be be quite amazing and they, i mean they're doing a wonderful job in that they digitize a whole load of records for the yes. births and deaths um, and you can now order those as that's well you know it's definitely yeah a well service.
1: and i think you're quite lucky actually that it's not a free service because that also guarantees a real good service. I mean, most of the time you will get the the records that you order and you'll get them within a very short time span. Um, In Spain and in a a lot of other Spanish-speaking countries, um, because the service is free, precisely, um, the service is not that good. And I'm not necessarily criticizing the the system. I'm just saying that um, where there is a, a paid service, you do actually get your money's worth most of the time. Whilst uh, in Spain, records aren't centralised, records aren't digitised in most places, um, so it's actually quite difficult to get your hands on a specific record if you don't know where to look and you don't have a date, which is obviously most, most of the time the case. Um, so I actually do rather envy uh, the system in England and Wales, for example, having the the General Registry Office um, at uh, at our disposal, going on free BMD or or the GRO um, website, and just being able to delve into the records and ordering them, um, you know, for for a fee. Admittedly, it's a relatively small fee, but you do get your money's worth
0: what kind of challenges have you found with the different countries and the different records that are available because obviously you have you have this spanish italian american and english ancestry for you to navigate that as a researcher you're dealing with very different uh records very different attitudes to records presumably uh, different geographies uh different languages different religions presumably um, what what kind of challenges can that be for you
1: well, language can be a barrier, of course. Uh, fortunately, having grown up in a bilingual uh, household, uh, speaking English with my dad and Spanish with my mum, fortunately, there hasn't been um, a, a, an actual brick wall for me. Um, but, in fact, quite the reverse. It's, it's opened uh, so many possibilities. Um, but I would say that understanding uh, the administrative system behind each system, so, in other words, understanding... Um, when civil registration began in a specific area or in a specific country versus uh church records for example where i mean from when do they start where are they stored all that information it varies greatly even within the same country it varies tremendously now i know in the uk for example you're used to go into your records office um where you'll find civil and religious records uh, in spain for example it's not at all that case case um And also in Italy, for example, uh, civil records are held by civil authorities, while church records are mostly held still by um, the the church authorities. They're not necessarily in the actual church where they were recorded initially, uh, but they will be probably in the diocesan archives, which is the the seat of the diocese um, of the the bishop, essentially. So you have to know um, how to navigate. I mean, it's not just the internet. It is also knowing... Um, where those records are and of course you know if you don't speak the language then that's an additional challenge and uh, as for the attitudes again um, you will find it depends from one case to another but especially in countries like spain or italy um, where the service is not centralized uh, you will have to deal with um, individual uh, authority. So you will have to, um, deal with and and communicate with a specific registrar or a specific priest or an archivist. And sometimes their attitude will determine how successful your research will be. It's not only how lucky you will be as a researcher and a genealogist and what information you can, you can get in Spain, uh, and in Italy, for example, and other countries, there is still, um, a great lack of recognition towards, uh, genealogy in general as as a I mean it's we're still in Spain I mean uh, we're still at the point where everyone just considers genealogy to be um, a hobby first of all it's it's not a profession so I mean there are of course a few uh, professionals uh, in the spanish-speaking world but um, mostly it's regarded as a hobby to the point actually where if you order uh, a birth record for example from the civil registry, And you have to justify that request. And if you put genealogy, chances are you will not get that record just because registrars are fed up of genealogists. Because, of course, most of the time we'll come to them without uh, knowing the exact date or we'll be missing what are the surnames or we'll be whatever. I mean, the information will not be complete. And that, of course, frustrates them because they're not actual archivists. They are Civil servants—they're working in a public office, um, so um, they're not there to cater to the needs and uh, and foibles of a of a of a growing uh, genealogy community.
0: Um, in in your research, um, can you recall? kind of how far back you have have got to you, who's your earliest ancestor
1: well <laughs> it largely depends who you who you believe um because <laughs> i very recently uh came across uh one of those famous trees on ancestry i think it was um oh. in, which included the name of one of my ancestors uh from herefordshire in england so it's on my dad's uh, english side and uh i was like oh you yeah, know i'll click on there to see where that takes me because of course i was um rather bemused by the fact that it had a coat of arms assigned as a picture to my ancestor i was like okay i always assumed okay. that he was an agricultural laborer or something like that but uh okay i'll take i'll take uh, local gentry or aristocracy and of course i kept on clicking up the generations to the point where they connected me uh to Um, Eleanor Holland, who was the uh, very interesting woman, actually. Um, She was the illegitimate daughter of Constance of York um, by uh, Edmund uh, Edmund Holland, I believe, if I I got my names right. And uh, that, of course, connected me to the Plantagenet, and from there to William the Conqueror, and from there to Charlemagne. So, of course, um, this is this is information, A, that I'm, well, first of all, actually, I'm trying to verify that because, I mean, of course, it would be interesting to find a connection to the Plantagenets and especially to the Yorks, uh, which, are, of course, are, are the family that I, I favor rather than the Lancasters. Um, but, um, I mean, for the moment, obviously, I'm just trying to verify that information step by step. So, so far on that side, I've reached the mid-1500s, which is already quite better than what I had before on that line. Uh, But it it, it is actually correct so far. But I've still got about four or five generations. And of course, we're talking about the um, early 1500s, 1400s. And of course, records are going to be very, very difficult to come across. But if we're talking about reliable sources, and if we're talking about uh, research that I've done myself as well, I would say uh, that on my Spanish side, on my mother's side, I think there's um, an ancestor who lived in the mid 1500s in Spain. Um, And that's probably the the furthest I've I've managed to go. Uh, In time, of course. I mean, geographically, we're scattered all over the place. I've got ancestors from um, Piedmont in northwestern Italy. I've got ancestors uh, that Uh, from Herefordshire mainly, and Worcestershire and Shropshire, but uh, some of them go back into Wales, which actually um, I'm really happy about because I'm really keen to explore my Welsh roots as well. Unfortunately, I haven't found any ancestors from Ireland or Scotland, which are, again, uh, two other places that I would love to have ancestors from. But uh, honestly, whenever I find an ancestor who just came from somewhere totally different uh, and totally unexpected, that just thrills me.
0: Uh, and I know that you have undertaken many DNA tests, or have administered many DNA tests to your uh, relatives. Um, so presumably, in those results, you've had ethnicity estimates re- tied to a particular country. Have you had any surprises in amongst those countries that they've suggested?
1: Well, uh, the the uh, the biggest surprise, I suppose, came at the b- very beginning when those uh, DNA ethnicity results were still relatively vague and relatively general. So my dad's uh, DNA results, for example, showed that he had some DNA from the Indian subcontinent, which was news to us. But uh, in time, as the uh, results uh, have been, you know, refined and and have become a bit better, um, that Indian subcontinent ethnicity has completely disappeared. So unfortunately, I don't think we are going to have any um, ancestors from India, which again would be something that I'd be absolutely thrilled about. Surprises from the ethnicity point of view, I would say it 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 actually confirms um, the information that uh, we've done, Um, but um, and again that's quite useful because since we weren't one hundred percent sure at the beginning who my paternal grandfather was, it has actually confirmed. that he was who he was, because I've actually been able to, I haven't found any very close relatives on that side of the family, but I have found some relatively distant uh, cousins uh, on the Italian, Anglo-Italian, well, Italian side, I should I should say, um, which has actually proven that my grandfather is who he was because I've been able to link those people to my grandfather um, with actual documents. So having the DNA there is actually quite handy. But the biggest surprise came not through the ethnicity results, but actually on the cousin matches um, side of the the DNA. We've actually discovered relatively recently as well that uh, one of my dad's first cousins had a son when he was still in his 20s about to get married and so on uh, and we discovered that he had this child uh, which he didn't even know about actually it's not that and he's passed away but we're 100 sure that he did not know about this cousin's uh, existence and discovering that and finding out who the father was because of course we had a few candidates um, on my father's side and um, having to figure that out was really really exciting and I'm happy to say that he's now been welcomed into the family
0: wow I can't I can't begin to imagine how that would feel if that was me
1: it was there was a moment of awkwardness uh, yeah. at the beginning but we were very careful not to make assumptions and we uh, were very diplomatic in our approach to the close relatives because of course um, this was a life-changing experience for a lot of the people involved, um, and especially since the the biological father had already passed away, it did um, affect the image, let's say, uh, or the memories that they had of him, perhaps. I mean, we had to be really careful not to damage that image, and um, and we wanted to reassure them that, yes, we are pretty sure that he did not know about uh, his exis- his son's existence.
0: I mentioned Revista Descendientes in your introduction, and you've obviously talked a little bit about uh, Spanish genealogy and Spanish research. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your new downloadable Spanish-language genealogy magazine. With pleasure. Uh, we're still
1: actually um, in the midst of uh, promoting it, so this uh, this is a very welcome opportunity that you're giving me, and I really encourage everybody to uh, take a look at our website, our Twitter, um, our Facebook page. Um, it's uh, If you just Google Revista Descendientes, which I hope is easy enough for everyone who is listening to identify and to, to spell. Um, so this project... Uh, has been my pet project for a long time. In my mind, Uh, I've uh, really wanted to do something. uh, Again, uh, looking at examples in the UK, um, having magazines, I mean, real physical magazines, such as Who Do You Think You Are? and Family Tree magazine and and all the other magazines that are out there. um, I really felt that we needed something similar in Spain. Now, unfortunately, I haven't got the time or the resources to launch a real um, physical magazine myself, Uh, not yet anyway. But um, I really felt that something had to be done to bring the community of Spanish speaking researchers together. Um, And again, this is another symptom of what Spanish uh, research is, is all about. It's very fragmented not just because the records aren't centralized but also because everyone tends to mind their own if you compare it to the UK for example which is a case which will be you know which will ring uh, bells with most of the audience I hope Um, You have your local family history societies, or you have uh, the the county level family history societies, but then you have thematic family history societies, for example, it doesn't have to be, it can be about a community, for example, not just necessarily a geographical uh, community. And um, in our particular case, we just wanted to bring all those different communities together to have some sort of platform so everyone can learn about research in other areas of Spain or the Spanish-speaking world, because that's another thing. We're not just catering to um, to people in Spain. We're, we also want to reach out to people um, in uh, Latin America, essentially, um, and also any country with uh, a cultural link to to Spain. So hopefully we'll also allele people. We actually do have subscribers already from France, from Portugal, even from the UK and Ireland, um, but also further afield from countries that have a cultural tie um, or historic tie to, to Spain, like the Philippines, for example. So by doing this, essentially, our purpose is to democratize genealogy in a way. We want to give genealogy uh, a visibility, first of all, um, vis-a-vis the authorities that I was talking about a minute ago. Um, we want that recognition, first of all. Uh, we want to show people that this is a serious discipline, that this is something to be taken seriously, this should be, this is not just a hobby for old men, old retired men. This is a, a, a passion for a lot of people and a job for a lot of other people as well. And this is something which, um, should be given the recognition by the corresponding authorities, be it the church, be it the civil authorities, be it archi- archivists archivists being of course our allies mainly because they tend to be quite uh, quite friendly towards us, genealogists um, but we do want that so- sort of social recognition as a, as a community. We also want to essentially um, provide a means for everybody to engage um, and share information, uh, be it through our Facebook posts, through our twitter feed uh through our magazine contributions we accept contributions from everyone um as long as the information the 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 text itself has not been published elsewhere um we we were happy to take it on and to publish it because we really wanted to make it um, a collaborative space
0: So this part of the show is called Relatively Speaking and this is where my guest picks one of their ancestors or relatives who has a fascinatingly good, bad or ugly life story and is going to share it with us. So Daniel, who have you chosen to introduce to us today?
1: my five-times great-grandfather, Alonso Martinez. So he's an ancestor of mine on my Spanish side. Um, And uh, he lived uh, between 1765 and 1837. Uh, And he is by far, I think, the most evil ancestor that I've come across so far, uh, which makes him, for me, um, really, really fascinating to
0: research. Wow, that's uh, quite a bold claim. This is episode one, and we're doing evil already. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So where does uh, Alonso's story start?
1: So Alonso was born in the northwest of Spain in a tiny um, coastal village uh, in the year 1765, um and although the area is uh, mostly i mean it's quite rural um but he actually belonged to a relatively affluent family um his father belonged to a dynasty of uh, public notaries uh, a profession which uh, Alonso himself embarked upon this is a, a profession that was actually carried through the generations uh, right down almost to the present day um i think i counted once um we've come across about uh, 20 or so public notaries on that side of the family. So it's, 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 it's something that's really embedded in our DNA.
0: So kind of like a reputable family trade that's handed down
1: Exactly. It's uh, Obviously, it, it conveys uh, social status uh, because a uh, public notary, as you know, is someone who uh, confirms or acknowledges certain facts that happen um, before them. They, they uh, As they, they say in Spanish, uh, they give uh, faith of, of something, so they prove that something um, has happened. Uh, so it's a very important. I mean, legally, it's a very important uh, figure. Now, Alonso did have that sort of status um, within, you know, in his family tree as such. Um, I don't think they were extremely wealthy or anything of the sort. I think they had more of a social status and no doubt in their small community, they would have uh, been well known and respected, uh, but they weren't in any way, I mean, they weren't sort of gentry as such, not that I, that I've been able to discover anyway, uh, but nevertheless, they they would certainly... Um, among the upper echelons of society locally although his mother uh his mother's family did have uh quite a few properties in the area and his grandfather i was actually recently pleased to discover actually owned a, a ship and a half the ship being i assume like a, a small um, a fishing boat or something like that um but there was a bit of money in the family as well um Nevertheless, I still think, uh, and I always will think, uh, that Alonso married um, above his station. Um, I think he was a bit of a gold digger, and he seems to have been a very proud person, and I'll explain why as I go along. So in 1786, when he was uh, about 21, he left a local girl pregnant, and she was actually quite older than he was. I think she was about 27 or 28, um, and Coincidentally or not, his uncle, Alonso's uncle, was her godfather in her baptism record. So there was a sort of family link there in a way, which no doubt to me explains how they actually met. But whether or not they were actually intended um, for each other, I don't really think is the case because it took them quite a long time to actually uh, to get married because their child was actually born only two months after the wedding. So I think there must have been a lot of uh, negotiation in the background. And this, I mean, it's mostly assumptions. But um, when you see at the speed that they had children afterwards and, uh, and subsequent um, factors that I'll mention now, um, I think that the, her family was not particularly pleased by uh, the fact that this, how this marriage started off. So Alonso married um, Jacoba. Uh, in 1787, uh, she definitely belonged to um, uh, an upper class. Uh, certainly, a class which was uh, better positioned than than his. Um, she had uh, a double-barreled name, which in Spain, especially at the time, uh, could imply some degree of nobility or gentry or something like that. Her father was a local historian, and he was also a public notary. But he belonged to an upper Uh, level of public notary. So he was a royal public notary. Um, So again, there is that difference uh, socially between the two families. And more importantly, uh, she was an heiress, because although she was the third child born to her parents' marriage, um, her elder sister had become a nun. Her only brother had died Uh, In infancy. So Jacoba was effectively the only one who could carry uh, the family fortune and the family property to the next generation. So she was quite a catch. And her grandparents on her father's side had actually created uh, or founded an entail. Uh, the equivalent of an entail in Spain, which basically meant that all their properties and all their money, etc. were all tied together, so they could only be passed on in bulk to a specific person in the family, as opposed to being divided among different descendants. And this mechanism basically um, made Jacoba a very, very wealthy person. So of course Alonso was very keen to to marry her, and uh, they had their first child shortly after marrying. And they would actually go on to have uh, twelve children in total in uh, only thirteen years. So in, over the next thirteen years, Alon- uh, Jacoba, sorry, was essentially constantly pregnant. About three months after giving birth uh, to her previous child, she would become pregnant again, and nine months later, the next child would come along. So it's essentially almost a child every year. Unfortunately for uh, Alonso and Jacoba, uh, at the beginning, all the children that they had, excepting the the boys that died uh, young, um, they only had daughters. And the entail was tied to the male line, of course, as long as there was a male to inherit. Unfortunately, in 1795, uh, their eldest surviving son, Miguel, who is actually the one I'm descended from, was born. So that provided the family with an heir, finally, uh, which I'm sure did not please the daughters uh, very much. And uh, things took a turn, for the worse, when in 1812 Jacoba died. Unfortunately, she was in her mid-50s. and uh, that meant that all the property would pass on to Miguel, the eldest-born son, or the eldest surviving son. Alonso kept hold of the um, estate, if, if you will. Um, he was the legal administrator for his children's uh, property because Miguel was at the time still underage. And although he was actually about 18, um, you actually became uh, an adult legally in, uh, in, at that time in the 18th century when you were 25. So Alonso still have a f- That's quite a weight. That's quite a weight exactly. So Alonso would have uh, administered all the, the the properties um which legally belonged to his son uh for a number of years still. Um in 1821 Uh, So a few years after becoming a widower, Alonso decided to marry a woman who was considerably younger than he was. Um, And I don't think she was particularly liked by most of the family. I mean, she was younger, considerably younger than Alonso's eldest daughter. So there was that. But also the fact um, that uh, this may have implied undue influence on the new wife's, on the second wife's uh, family, um, on the... On Alonso's own family's properties, etc., and affairs, uh, and I think things really took a turn for the worse when, um, in 1822, I believe it was, or 23, I I'm not sure now. Uh, one of Alonso's daughters by his first wife became pregnant, and she was unmarried, and Alonso decided to kick her out of the family house because uh, this was a total disgrace. But not just that, he also decided to kick out all the other daughters, probably because they uh, decided to sympathise with, with their sister, and they probably defended her. Uh, so Alonso just unilaterally kicked out all the daughters from the family home, which wasn't even his home.
0: Well, he was a massive hypocrite then, considering that he did exactly the same.
1: Exactly. Exactly. He was definitely no example to, to follow in that in that sense, or certainly... Uh, yeah, he, 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 he was, he was, he wasn't free of, of sin, if you will, uh, certainly in, in his eyes. So that was extremely hypocritical of him. Anyway, in 1826, Miguel, uh, the eldest son finally came into his, uh, property, um, and Alonso legally transferred everything to him. But shortly after Miguel left another local girl pregnant and she was, um, I mean, she came from an extremely poor background. Uh, She wasn't this sort of gentry, aristocratic, rich, socially respectable, whatever, family. At least uh, that's what the papers say. So Alonso was not pleased at all by this. Um, He he essentially tried to forbid uh, Miguel from marrying his sweetheart, uh, who by then was uh, quite far gone. And Miguel actually had to uh, go to the captain general, of Galicia that's the region where they lived uh, in order to get the permission to marry because at the time even if you were old enough to marry you were legally enough uh, old enough to marry you still needed your parents permission if they were alive don't ask me why it's just the way it was and uh, Alonso of course said no but fortunately for for the family of Miguel uh, the captain general said yes So Miguel ended up marrying his sweetheart in 1826 and uh, they had, I think, nine children in total. So they were very happily married, I think. But relations, unfortunately, between Alonso and uh, most of his children um, would never mend. Another son belonged to politically to uh, the complete opposite of Alonso's sympathies. But Alonso was... um, Uh, an absolutist, he um, supported the Ancien Regime, he wasn't for progress, he wasn't a liberal, and uh, this other son, José, was uh, a confirmed and committed liberal. Um, He actually had to go into exile to Portugal for seven years, having left his wife and three eldest daughters back in Spain, because he was persecuted for his uh, liberal ideas. And he eventually came back, fortunately, and uh, had another seven children with his his wife. but um, politically, there was also that element. There was a big divide in that family. And uh, it was also a very complicated time in Spain because Spain was transitioning from the absolutely absolutist regime to a more liberal regime.
0: So it was a a hypocritical uh, judgment on his children and their relationships based on uh, his inherited via his late wife's, Uh, fortune and the political uh, atmosphere at the time.
1: I think he was, uh, to put it bluntly, I think he was a bit of a bigot. Um, I I think he was not uh, a nice person, and I think he actually died a a bitter old man. Um, So the only child who stayed behind was his youngest son, just because he was a minor, legally still, and he actually forced him, essentially, to be conscripted into the army, in the absolutist uh, army, of course, uh, in favour of the uh, Ancien Regime um but relations with all the other children so with the six daughters and the two other sons completely broke down and as far as i know as far as i've been able to tell they were all scattered to the winds and relations were never mended with them so it was all quite a mess actually um so alonso passed away in 1837 um in i think in the family home and i think uh, the property just got sold because by then uh, unfortunately, for my ancestor Miguel, um, entails were no longer um, a legal tool, so they were they were um, got rid of by the uh, liberal regime, which meant that Miguel could no longer claim uh, property. Uh, of all those uh, different households and uh, all those different uh, pieces of land scattered all over the place. Um, So he essentially uh, lost everything that his mother had intended him to inherit one day. But he moved to a a different town. Uh, That's where his son, the one I'm descended from, was born. And uh, the rest is, is history. And I mean, they, they, they retain some of that respectability, but they were by no means as uh, powerful or as um, wealthy, certainly, as the previous generations had been. But it does make for a good story. And honestly, this is something which um, I, I've been asked to tell at a lot of family reunions because it's such a fascinating uh, part <laughs> of our history, which also represents the social and political history of Spain. At the time, there's this clash of the... Um, the absolutist versus the liberal, the conservative versus the progressive. I think you just have to accept family history for the fact that it provides you rather than what you hope you will find or what you want to find. I can't condemn him or I can't make him less of an ancestor because he wasn't nice. He is there. Full stop.
0: Yeah, deal with it. <laughs> and speaking of which, actually, it's uh, time to face... THE BRICK WALL Anyone who has researched their family history will no doubt have come across a brick wall, a dead end, where the trail of clues and evidence stops. Sometimes this is forever, thanks to destroyed or lost records, but sometimes it's only temporary. In this final part of the show, we'll hear our guest's current brick wall in hope that you or I can help with making that breakthrough. If you think you can help our guests with solving their brick wall, then visit familyhistoriespodcast.com to find out how you can make contact with them. So, Daniel, who is your brick wall?
1: So my brick wall um, is someone who is obviously related to me, but is not a direct ancestor. However, she is a bit of a survivor, and that's why I like her, because um, she is very special within her own family unit, and I would really, really like to find out what happened to her. So her name was Mary Elizabeth Vickress, which is a bit of an unusual surname.
0: how should we spell that?
1: V-I-C-K-R-E-S-S. Mary Elizabeth Vickress, um, she was born um, on the 16th of March 1860 in Pensnet, which at the time was part of Kingswinford, uh, which is now a, a part of Dudley in the West Midlands in Staffordshire. She was her parents' eldest child. Her father, Henry Edward Vickress, was the youngest brother of my three times great-grandfather, Frederick. Henry Edward Vickress was... Uh, a carpenter and joiner, married first to Mary Davis, uh, who uh, died shortly after uh, after giving him uh, a daughter, Caroline. And then he married Sarah Foisy, um in uh, 1857. Um, and Mary Elizabeth was their eldest daughter. Uh, she was actually the first of seven children that they would go on to have. Unfortunately, the family was so poor Uh, that most of the children died uh, within the first year of their life. So um, in 1861, uh, Sarah Jane, uh, the second daughter, passed away. Uh, In 1871, another daughter, Susanna, died aged a few months. In 1872, within the span of five days, uh, Jane and William Henry passed away. And in 1873, uh, Drusilla passed away. So that's um, five children dying within uh, a very short span of time. Mary Elizabeth and her younger sister, Mercy Bickress, were the only uh, surviving daughters of uh, Henry Edward's marriage to Sarah Foisy, together with uh, Caroline, Mary Elizabeth's elder sister from his first marriage. Family stayed around uh, in Staffordshire, and uh, they lived in in around Dudley uh, for, for a little while but then they ended up moving to Wolverhampton which is actually where Henry Edward died in 1875 he was only 45 years old uh, he died of TB, of consumption uh, which is actually an illness which uh, killed off a lot of uh, the family members so there is that element in this on the side of the family of uh, poverty uh, of illness, disease which uh, makes it the sort of classical uh, Victorian tale Um, Mary Elizabeth, however, fortunately uh, survived, as did her younger sister, Mercy, and uh, the two lived with their widowed mother for a few years. Um, I haven't been able to find Mary Elizabeth on the 1871 census, uh, although I just assumed that because she wasn't home, she'd probably gone into service somewhere. Um, Her eldest sister, Caroline, uh, had gone into service by the time, and they all stayed around Uh, the West Midlands area, um, around Birmingham and Wolverhampton. Mercy, the younger sister, did go into service eventually and was actually working as a domestic servant uh, when her mother, Sarah, passed away in 1881, again, of uh, uh, bronchitis. So again, pulmonary, respiratory uh, problems. So Mary Elizabeth was gone. I don't know where she'd gone off to. Mercy stayed behind. Um, She uh, went to live in Birmingham went into service, as I said, and fell pregnant in 1885, gave birth to a son, who very sadly died, uh, aged only two days. Uh, We don't know who the father was. Uh, Unfortunately, Mercy passed away um, on the 7th of February, 1886 in Erdington in Birmingham. Uh, Again, she died of tuberculosis. Uh, She was only 23 at the time. And very interestingly, um, her sister Mary Elizabeth who is the only surviving sister apart from the elder half sister Caroline um Mary Elizabeth is the only full uh sibling of mercy's who's still around she's still alive because um I found Mercy's probate record uh, dated November 1886 and uh, in it it gives her address as 263 Great Lister Street in Birmingham and actually both of the sisters appear to have lived there so Mary Elizabeth was definitely in England in 1886 because uh, property was granted to her. But what actually becomes of her after that point is a real mystery. I can't find her in the 1891 census or indeed any subsequent censuses. I haven't been able to find a marriage record. Her name was still legally Mary Elizabeth Vickress in 1886. So for sure she had not married before then, whether she was living with anybody, I don't know. She may have emigrated. I certainly cannot find any record of her in the States or any other, uh, any other place. If she was indeed in service, then why isn't she listed in the censuses? If she died, where did she die and when? I can't find a death record. She's a mystery. She's a real, real mystery. And there's something fascinating about a whole family becoming absolutely obliterated within a 40-year span. Although Henry Edward Vickers had eight children in total, by the 1890s, all of them, with the possible exception of Mary Elizabeth, had died and left no descendants. And that's the reason why I want to find out what happened to Mary Elizabeth Vickers She is my brick wall. If anybody can um, help me with that, um, I would be really, really grateful. I think she probably went by Mary rather than Mary Elizabeth. I have searched for Lizzie's and Betty's and all the other combinations that I could think of. Um, And of course, the surname Vicress, because it is so unusual, and it can be actually uh, confused with um, other surnames, I found all sorts of spellings uh, for Vicress. I found Vickers, Vicaris with an I. Uh, I found Nickris, for example, because people just mistake the the V with an N. Um, There's all sorts of variations there, which doesn't make the research any easier. But I do have her date of birth. I do know where she was born. And even with those um, those details, uh, researching her is really, really challenging.
0: Let's imagine you had, I don't know, a time machine at your disposal. And we know that 11th of November 1886 is the last documented reference to her. Would that be the kind of date that you would want to go to to investigate and break this brick wall.
1: Definitely, I would d- certainly ask her where she was in eighteen eighty-one because that's the census that I couldn't find her in. So hopefully, her her memory could be <laughs> jogged a little bit. Um, and I would definitely ask her what her next plans were.
0: Well, it's uh, well, it's funny you should mention this, really, because I can kind of help you, but you'll need to follow me through to the garage. Okay. Follow you. Well, there it is. Wow. What is that? Well, it's, it's a time machine. What? No, no, no. Honest. I mean, just, just sit there, okay? Uh, and hold this. Right, let me just get this uh, started. Uh, yep. Well, oh, I can find it. Right. Uh, what was that date again? The 11th of November 1886. Uh, I mean 1886. You'll be fine. So that thing I gave you, uh, you need to keep hold of that the whole time. And when you're ready to come home, press the big button. Okay, big button. Got it. Excellent. Well, you are going to love 19th century Birmingham. It's working. smith ramos thank you goodbye and good luck oh 1786 whoops the family histories podcast was presented and produced by me andrew martin with additional sound production by elliot lees my guest was the brilliant daniel smith ramos if you've enjoyed this episode then please click subscribe to get the next one or consider leaving a review thank you Approximately no family historians are harmed in the making of this podcast.